We're speaking today with Alan Newman, a psychologist with a focus on behavioral economics and innovation. Alan is the chairman of the Finance IT Network and a frequent commentator within the financial community on topics such as Stone Age brains in 21st century skulls, why stories trump numbers, and what women want which I know you took on at a recent conference of financial advisors. But we, before we get into these engaging subjects, I'd like to begin by asking about behavioral economics. And I think it's fair to say that ever since Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for his work in this field in 2002, we've all heard and even used the term but I know in my case, I don't really know what I'm talking about. Can you help us understand what's going on here and why it's received so much attention? Uh, well, thank you, Kate. And uh, I hope your readers will believe it and the listeners will think that the answer is indeed yes, I can help. I think Kahneman's point is really two related issues. The first is about how we think. And he talks about system one thinking and system two thinking. And system one thinking, it's fast, it's intuitive, it's effortless, and it's subconscious. And thinking is pretty much the opposite. It's conscious, it's slow, it's not intuitive, it's calculating. And why that matters is because economists and financial advisors and politicians have assumed that we use system two most of the time. And we don't. We make thousands of decisions a day, and we use system one, and, and it works pretty much. Um, but that's really important. Uh, I, th I think that's the first thing. And it matters because once you understand that, you think about advice differently, you think about behavior differently, and you then come into the world of choice architecture, which we'll come on to a little bit later on. But I think that's the first thing. It's about system one thinking and system two thinking. And then maybe a little bit later on, we'll talk about biases. All righty. Um, so here I am. I'm stuck uh, with my Stone Age brain. Yes. Um, and I've got all these 21st century realities. Uh, how does this impact us when we're making decisions, particularly regarding risk and money? Okay. <clears throat> I think the nice thing about the idea of thinking about the Stone Age brain is that, think about our ancestors. They understood risk, all right? They were faced with it all the time. Risk from predators, risk of not getting food, risk when they met other bands of humans. So the brain's got uh, different areas that deal with risks, just like we've got different bits that deal with music, different bits that deal with time, different bits that deal with vision. But brains don't do money. Money's only been around about 4,000 years. In evolutionary terms, that's nothing. So, so when you present a brain with a, a situation involving money and a decision around money, what it tends to do is breaks it down into what are the benefits that are you know, being presented to me, what are the costs and risks, and what are the time factors. And it kind of follows that sequence. Mm -hmm. So if I can give an example and encourage you to look at, say, two products. Think about a credit card. Okay? This is great for brains. Okay, because what happens is when you're offered a credit card, first of all, you've got to pat on the back socially 
because presumably you've already passed some kind of credit check. So you're already feeling good and you can immediately see that you can go out and buy those Jimmy Choo shoes that you've been planning on. All right. So that's a big tick. You know, the benefits are immediate. And because you get a bill every month and, you know, and it's a percentage, you feel that you can, you know, deal with that. It's not risky or, you know, that, you know, you're not having to commit. It's only the next four weeks out. And that's the other time factor, which is great, you know, because it it deals within time now, which is what brains are good at. <clears throat> By contrast, think of a pension. The benefits are not at all clear. Governments keep changing the rules. They're kind of complicated. Um, the risks seem to be high because there are uh, you know, financial shocks to the system, you know, the changes in regulations. So this isn't good. And it's a long way off. And basically brains, all of us, if you think about how we remember things, we're good at plus or minus a year. But after that, things get a bit tricky. So for a brain, a pension is pretty toxic. It just doesn't, you know, tick any of the boxes. And a credit card, you know, ticks all the boxes. So that kind of shows how some modern things fit into our own old brain well, well and others don't. Well, that's really so That was a lot, long, bit of rambling there, but I hope that was okay. Absolutely. Um, it, it, it certainly aligns with my experience. <laughs> um, gosh, now I've gotten at, to my favorite question. Um, and at the risk of becoming the Larry Summers of the podcast world, I want to ask you if you think women's brains are wired differently when it comes to making financial decisions. And if so, what are the implications for both the providers and the purchasers of financial advice? When this topic comes up, it's always, I'm always aware that, you know, you know, sort of crushed eggshells are all around when we start walking on this. So let, let me answer by giving, first of all, um, a kind of a, an invitation to of a story. What I want you to imagine is um, that you see your partner and child being swept away by a river. Right. Okay. Which one, if I can ask, do you know which one you would rescue? Yes, but I don't want my husband <laughs> to hear my answer. <laughs> But it's the answer that most mothers would give. They would rescue the child. If you ask most fathers the same question, they would actually rescue their partner, not the it's child. Really fascinating. All right. Yeah. And if we think through this, and I know a lot of people will be shouting at the, the device that they're listening uh, <laughs> with, but actually there is a gender difference here. And actually it makes sense. You know, if you think about the investment you've made in a, a child, that's much, you know, greater than and, and you can basically if you're part of the expression get another sperm donor pretty easily if your current partner goes away it's a very different for a bloke you know we've actually invested a lot um having privileged access to you okay so and what that means is the way we think about ownership the way we think about risks are very different because our circumstances our gender-based circumstances are indeed very different. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going beyond that. If you just think about the world of insults, if if I accuse you, if anybody accuses you of being a bad mother, most mothers feel feel that as a, as a deep wound. Um, I would suggest that actually most fathers wouldn't, you know, the comparable thing saying to somebody, uh, you're a bad father, you know, we'll often say, uh, yes, that's true, but fortunately the mother's great. And then we carry on talking mm -hmm. about the football. So I think the there are gender differences here. And the other one I would say, um, which ties into this is certainly in the UK when I go to lots of conferences um, financial services is pretty much male pale and stale 
You know, it doesn't reflect the, the broader culture in which we operate. And it's got a real blind spot when it comes to dealing with women. You know, it doesn't realise, you know, that actually marketing to women doesn't just mean you make your brochures pink. You know, you've got to actually think a little bit more deeply about this. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't want to sound like Donald Rumsfeld, but I'm in a quadrant here where I know I don't know a huge amount, but I do know that women do buy differently. They do perceive risk differently um, and they do perceive their duties differently. And this has a huge impact on the way they deal with money. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting point. Um, you know, bef before we leave this subject, I, tell me a little bit more ab about this whole issue of why uh, why stories trump numbers every time. Um, okay. Help me understand <clears throat> that one. Well, if I can start with a, a specific example that illustrates the point. Okay. Um, a well-known experiment, 2004, um, was basically looking at people to sign up uh, to be um, participating in drug trials. Okay. So two drugs were offered. Uh, there were two drugs in this scenario. Uh, one drug was had so far proven to be 90% effective. Another one about 9 or 10% effective. But when people were being uh, invited to participate, they were either told, okay, here's this pretty good drug, it seems to be from initial results, and it's had these wonderful effects. So there's a good drug with a good story. Under those circumstances, 88% of people signed up. Here's the bad drug, and actually we have to tell you that some people had some pretty bad side effects trying this. And under those circumstances, poor drug, negative story, 7% of people signed up. What gets interesting is when you look at the effective drug, but you give a negative story, you emphasize side effects, negative side effects, only 39% of people signed up for that. When you had the poor drug, but a positive story, this changed somebody's life when they took it, 78% of people signed up. Hmm. So the story had way more impact on people's decision than the numbers. Okay? okay? And we're very good at understanding stories. I mean, think about how you as a parent basically teach your kids. Or more to the point, think about how your children learn. It isn't actually about how you teach them. It's actually about how they learn. And that's actually true for us as we get older. You know, one of the challenges about stories and, and, and opportunities is I could have had a day with my financial advisor going through all the numbers, all the presentations, and come away informed, confident, and agreed. And that evening over dinner, a, a trusted friend might turn around and said, actually, I had that investment product, and uh, we had a bit of a kind of blip, and it was, it was terrible. And suddenly, all that, all that data goes out of the window. The whole day is trumped by... And it's just trumped by a story from a trusted source. Mm -hmm. So, I, and, I, and I don't see that changing. Anytime you know, soon. No. I mean, in many ways, if I may put it this way, the American Constitution is a story. <laughs> and a pretty compelling one, if the results are anything to go by. There you go. It's been around for a long time. Um, well, not that long. It's only 200 years. Oh, we are, well, everything's relevant. We are in Britain. Is this is the other thing about behavioral economics, Kate. It's all about context. It's all about context. Actually, be That's before point, we wrap, actually. let's talk about yeah. context just a little bit, because yeah. I think that is such an important piece of this story. Yes. Um, <laughs> That's absolutely true. And, and as we are in the, um, the year of the world, uh, soccer World Cup, um, 
I think we can show the importance of context against the alternative, which is a rules-based world. Um, in any kind of team sports, you know, when you're watching it, you'll usually hear complaints from the uh, crowd about the referee being either the fact that they're um, not showing common sense or that they're being inconsistent. But if we think this through, you can't have both. In a rules-based world, you will be consistent, irrespective of whether it's a dirty game or a clean game, a World Cup final or a kick around on the park. Okay, That's consistency. Most of us, actually, even if we don't realize it, prefer things to be contextualized. All right. So we would expect a referee to be refereeing a dirty game differently to the way they referee a clean game. You know, so, so context matters. And if I can uh, put it that way, I mean, we're not on TV, but there's a nice bottle of uh, Badois uh, mineral water on that. Now, if I'm you know, coming into an office like that and I'm offered a drink in context, I'd accept the drink and I wouldn't be expected, you know, or I wouldn't expect to say, um, oh, and we'd like a, you know, a pound for that glass. But if I'm in uh, a, a little restaurant, then I'd expect to pay, you know, for that. But I'd expect a different price if I'm buying it in a supermarket or if I'm having exactly the same drink in a Hilton hotel. So we just, you know, everything is contextualized. It's all about context. We do it automatically. It seems really obvious. And yet... You know, in the world of financial services, you know, governments and regulators seem to think that rules will somehow significantly affect our behavior. And they won't. It's context. It's context. It's context. There we go. Um, well, you've given us lots of sort of great insights into how our brains work and um, I know I'm going to take them and um, think about how I make decisions a little bit differently after this conversation Um, and I'm sure our listeners will too so I really want to thank you for taking the time to explain this uh, and for being on Tanager Talks. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you very much Alan.